Welcome to Optimal Health for Busy Entrepreneurs, the podcast for busy and high-performing entrepreneurs and leaders who are looking to create more energy and optimize their health while upgrading their brain and personal performance with precision. I am your host, Julian Hayes II. I've been involved with health and performance for over a decade. This podcast was created for the high performer who is unapologetically ambitious, the one who moves at a fast pace and operates with an edge, the one who wants to become superhuman. Nothing here is fluff, gimmicky, or feel good. I have little to no interest in simply helping you improve your life. I want to help transform it. By listening to this podcast, expect to have a body that feels just as good as it looks. Expect to possess a swagger and style that gives off an infectious vibe. Expect to command a stage or any boardroom you walk into with your executive presence. And lastly, expect to become your most enhanced self so you can live a limitless life. Now, let's get to the show. everyone to another episode of Optimal Health for Busy Entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Julian Hayes II, back at it again with another fascinating guest. And it's being an entrepreneur is far from being a beautiful montage of these sports cars, these private jets, these millions of followers that are eagerly awaiting for your next product, these sold out arenas that we see on Instagram that you hear that we speak about. You know, this entrepreneur life is a roller coaster. It's filled with highs that are indescribable but it's also, and unfortunately, lows that you wouldn't wish upon your greatest enemy. Now, research published in the Journal of Small Business Economics found that entrepreneurs compared to comparison participants in the general population were two times more likely to have depression, three times more likely for substance abuse problems, six times more likely for ADHD, and 11 times more likely to have bipolar disorders. The entrepreneurial life can be a vicious cycle of chronic stress that's left unmanaged, that can lead to a suppressed immune system, sleep difficulties, weight gain, amongst many other psychological effects. So prioritizing your mental and emotional well-being is a must. Now, all of those things I mentioned, there's no research when it comes to grief. And that's a whole nother beast. And my guest today is someone who not only has personally experienced this a lot, but she's someone who helps smart people do hard things. She's a clinical psychologist, a speaker, host of the Zen Founder podcast, a mental health advocate, and the best-selling author of The Entrepreneur's Guide to Keeping Your Shit Together. And lastly, she's the author of the soon-to-be-released book. Well, actually, it will be released by the time this is out, Touching Two Worlds, which explores new strategies for finding wholeness in the aftermath of loss. So I'm speaking with none other than Dr. Sherry Walling. Sherry, how are you doing today? I am doing so well. It's wonderful to be with you, Julian. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for joining me. Um, yeah, as we talked a little bit about beforehand, um, there's really not a playbook when it comes to grief. And it, it's something that I think entrepreneurs really have a struggle with because we have to just keep going no matter what. You know, a lot of times the company, the business, it depends on us to operate. And so, so before we even get into that, um, let's hear a little bit about your origin story. Um, 
if we looked back as you as a kid, would we be surprised at what you're doing right now? Not at all. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I'm well. I guess there there are probably two answers to that question. So I grew up in a really um, a really wonderful, loving, but also like somewhat difficult home. And, um, a big part of my life as an early, as a, as a youngster was being part of a really uh, conservative, traditional evangelical community. And there were lots of gifts in that for me. And there were some things that were not gifts. So one of the things that was not a gift was that I grew up in a tradition where women weren't allowed to speak in church, weren't allowed to preach from the pulpit, sort of the belief was that, um, if they were to speak with authority, that authority had to be sort of under the, they had to speak under the authority of um, their husband or of another man. So uh, in some ways, the fact that I now speak for a living, it may, may cause some eyebrows to be raised, but um, I've always been somebody who really wanted to engage the, the real questions, right? Wasn't wasn't really content with, um, the surface level answer to things. I asked a lot of why, uh, both in school and at church. And I've always been somebody who wanted to sort of jump in there and into the depths. And so I think people that knew me as a child are not at all surprised at the kinds of stories that I've gone on to live and to tell and to share with others. Yeah, that tends to be, I I tend to, you kind of see this when people are growing up that a lot of times we become a lot of times the opposite of the environment we grew up in. I don't know if it's sort of a, like a rebellious thing or it's just something that is repressed in us because I grew up in a, I think a fairly conservative background and there was no such thing as an entrepreneur. It's you go work at the factory and yeah. and if you go to college, you know, you get a job and that's it. And so I ended up leaving school. I left medical school. And, um, right. and so that's a crazy you know, that's a crazy thing from my side of the family. So I, I always just wonder these kind of things of just how we become, you know, who we are in this world. I feel like we're always wrestling with those stories, right? Mm-hmm. So your act of rebellion is to leave medical school and become an entrepreneur or start a business. And mine was to stay in school, right? My way of rebelling was to go to graduate school. Mm-hmm. And my job as a, a woman in the community that I grew up in was really to get married and have children and Okay. So as we were talking about rebellion and my rebellion was leaving school and yours was um, staying in school, has that rebellious, I guess, inner rebellious spirit, you think that has attracted like some of the clients that that you work with? Has, have you had a lot of those? I also, I think rebellion or some kind of being a person who's not content to color inside the lines is probably the most important marker of entrepreneurship, right? That is who entrepreneurs are. Um, Someone who's not super content with the set of rules that's been given to them and ends up deciding that they want to make something different or do something different. So the fact that that's part of me um, is one of the most important qualifications I have to work with entrepreneurs because it's like, I, I get it. Like I see the world that you see the world. And I know that there's this internal drive to make and to do and to kind of wiggle around the set of conditions as they've been given to try to change the conditions and rewrite the scripts. Yeah. So your first book that you wrote was all about entrepreneurs getting themselves together. And um, what was the impetus of that? 
I've, so that book, um, it's called The Entrepreneur's Guides Keeping Your Shit Together, uh, which is a title suggested by my son, which I was like, that's a really good title. Also, you're not <laughs> supposed to use that language. Um, but the book really is a summary of all that I had learned up to that point around entrepreneurial wellness. So by the time that I wrote the book, I'd been working with entrepreneurs for about five years after having worked with other kinds of high-performing uh, professionals before that. So um, a lot of ER physicians, people in the military, people with really high intensity jobs. So I started working with entrepreneurs because I married an entrepreneur and um, there were tech entrepreneurs in my living room every weekend. <laughs> and I heard so many of the mental health struggles and relationship struggles that they were experiencing that sounded so similar to that, that my clients were experiencing. And so I made the shift to really start to think about and focus on how to help entrepreneurs with mental health, started a podcast, started doing talks on the subject at different conferences. And the book was really the summary of all of that work, sort of phase one of my career with entrepreneurs came out in this book, which is designed to be a really simple user-friendly kind of handbook of, hey, what's burnout? How do you look out for it? How do you prevent it? What are co-founder relationship issues that are really common? How do you look out for them? How do you prevent them? And so, um, yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. Well, well, I think you hear this word burnout a lot and it, I think people use different terms for it. What, what do you, what, how do you describe burnout to someone? Yeah, I mean, I, I think burnout's pretty serious. And it is a term that has been adopted by popular vernacular in a way that, you know, I'm feeling really burnt out today. And I, I think that's helpful. I think the term is helpful. But when we really look at it more, I guess, scientifically or technically, burnout is a formal diagnosis. Um, it exists in the ICD-10 and it has a diagnostic code. And it is a set of symptoms that are reflective of extreme exhaustion related to one's work or caretaking responsibilities. So there are three kind of symptom clusters. One is a sense of mental and physical exhaustion. You can imagine all the things that go in that cluster. And then the next uh, cluster is a sense of diminished personal efficacy. So even though maybe you're working really hard or maybe you're having successes your brain does not read those successes. It feels like you're working really hard for no good reason, for no purpose, like it's all pointless. And then the third uh, symptom cluster is a sense of withdrawal or cynicism. So feeling very detached from the people that you work with, from the customers that you serve, from the maybe why that used to drive your work. So the three together form what is pretty a pretty debilitating kind of syndrome that professionals experience that makes it really hard for them to dig into their work mostly because it is it involves kind of an existential loss of meaning their work no longer feels like it matters very much and it's just a value drain instead of a value add do would most entrepreneurs come to you before when they're on the precipice of the burnout or when they're deep in it. Cause I, I, and I asked that because I know with myself, it took me to really be at a bad low spot before I sought any type of help in therapy or anything. Yeah, that is usually the case. 
Although I work really hard to try to promote a model of mental health prevention, right? Mm -hmm. It's like preventative health. Like if you can get your vitamins in your body and take your vaccines and do these things that, you know, your basic exercise and sleep well, you can prevent all kinds of problems from becoming really serious problems. So you're right in that most of the time when people finally end up in my Zoom room, not my office, I don't have an office, but in my Zoom room, it's because they're in the throes of burnout. And often there's not that much that can be done without taking some time away from their business because that's really the only way for the brain to reset, which is never a popular message. So I love to work with people before burnout Mm -hmm. happens. I love to prevent burnout. I think that's a much better use of everybody's time and energy. Yeah. I just, I just tend to think though, I, I guess maybe this is just me personally, that it's kind of a feeling and it's kind of, you kind of think that's Kind of what is our superpower can also be our kryptonite. Oh yeah, in, in this thing right here, right? And so I just think people are sometimes high strung, but that helps them get a lot of stuff done. But it's probably burning them out on the on the other end as well. Yeah, I, I even think about some of the data that you shared in your introduction. That that mm-hmm. work that you're quoting is from my friend and colleague, Dr. Michael Freeman. Oh, cool. And when you have entrepreneurs who are sometimes just sort of neurologically different, right? Higher prevalence of ADHD, higher prevalence of bipolar disorder. Those things are, they can be very serious medical conditions and I don't mean to minimize them, but they also are really associated with with nonlinear thinking, with neurodivergence, with seeing connections and having an energy to make and create things that is frankly a superpower for many entrepreneurs. So the conversation becomes, how do we take the benefits of the superpower and then try to minimize the liabilities or the shadow side of being somebody who's nonlinear, outside the box, kind of a rebel, wants to break all the rules and also has the power to make things where things haven't existed before. Yeah, that that's the sweet spot. And uh, yeah. You know, one thing that study didn't have, which I'm not sure if there's studies when it comes to like grief and caretaking related to entrepreneurship. I, I'm not sure about that. But um, and this leads into the next thing, which is dis- discussing your your recent book and what led to writing that book. Yeah. So I, like many other entrepreneurs, was plugging along, growing a business, raising children, having a good old time. And got a series of phone calls, the kind of phone calls that nobody wants to get. Uh, The first phone call was to let me know that my dad had been diagnosed with stage four metastatic esophageal cancer, which is one of the bad ones. You know, the, the point that he was diagnosed, I think the survival rate of someone living five years or longer was in the single digit percentile. So we knew that his cancer was very serious. And right alongside him, getting this diagnosis, my younger brother, who at the time was in his early 30s, really did a deep dive into his alcohol addiction and his own experience of depression. And so to make a a long story much shorter, there was this period of watching both of these people who I loved very much kind of come apart and eventually they both died. So my dad died of cancer and then six months after he died, we lost my brother to suicide. So I was catapulted into this other world of 
death and illness and grief and loss. And, um, one of my instincts was to, was to write about it, was to just observe what was happening to me and to my family and to use that method as a way to ground myself. But I wrote so much over so much time that I accumulated enough material for a book that, um, that I never intended to write. Like I'm not trying to build my career around grief, but it is a really beautiful book and I'm really proud of it. And I think it has a lot to offer the conversation around grief, especially among folk like us, right? Among mm-hmm. entrepreneurs who are in the middle of their lives, they're doing things. So. Yeah. Cause um, as, as I mentioned, um, you know, beforehand that when I lost my dad, just with a, with a phone call and yeah. You know, if, if you're going to a job and you'll get a certain amount of days, but then you go back and you have just, I guess, typically a certain thing to do. But if you're running a business, growing a business, there's so many other responsibilities and there's emotions that's tied with that within the business itself. And then you have this. So I said probably for a good year and a half that I was operating and I thought I was doing stuff, but I wasn't really like present. So yeah. I, I, and I saw that you, you know, your dad's flannel shirts and I, I have my dad's rings on right now. Mm. So what was the initial like months in terms of just getting started back up? Yeah, I, I think the thing that I learned about grief that I hope other entrepreneurs take to heart is that it's not one thing, right? There were days, even days right after my dad and my brother died that I really wanted to work. I felt like I had a lot of fuel to work. I was focused. I wanted to be in my business and really thinking about the life I was building. And then there were days where that was not possible for me, where my brain wasn't working and I was kind of a zombie. And I think the wisdom that I took from the experience was the flexibility to be in whatever day I'm in. And that's one of the gifts of being an entrepreneur is that you sometimes, to some extent, you have the flexibility to say, okay, I don't. I don't have a full day in me, but I can do a little bit. I also think there's a lot of wisdom in not pushing it and waiting until your drive to build returns rather than trying to say, okay, I, you know, I went through this grief. We've had the memorial service, like time to get back to it. Um, that kind of forcing, I think was not helpful to me. Yeah. I, I tried to do that. Like the I think after the memorial service, like that Monday, I tried to, to get back at it and, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it, it just, just can do it. Yeah. Just, yeah. Just can do it. So, um, you know, with that step there, do you think that's, that's like ground one to getting started with rebounding and getting back to work in our business? I think that if we let it, grief can be a really powerful teacher. And I would encourage people not to rush. And I appreciate how hard that is as an entrepreneur with pressure and things to build. And maybe you take investment, you've got other people's money riding on it. But if you can go slow and really listen to grief, I think it's a great teacher. But it does work against our instinct to get back to normal as soon as possible. I don't think that's the healthiest route. Yeah. Why do you think... I guess this is an observation. It seems that we have really tried to blanket it and um, not make really blanketed death in from a societal standpoint. 
and like almost like cover it up like mm. how mm-hmm. what do you what do you think about that like i think like society doesn't really give an accurate portrayal of death and the whole that whole process yeah not at all not of death and not of grief Right. I actually, in my book, I write this story about um, how much death is in Disney movies. Like there's all of this data that looks at how much death children are exposed to. And it's a ton. It's like two thirds of Disney movies, like two thirds of movies marketed to children feature the death of a parent or a sibling. <laughs> it's like mm-hmm. a lot. But in those movies, maybe there's like one moment where the character is standing on a gravesite and there's like a glistening tear, but then like that night they're like making their plan to save the world or like build the robot or dethrone the King or whatever. So we have from a very, very early age built in this expectation that grief is sad and then get to work. And I think it's really, um, really a disservice to children and all also adults, this expectation that um, moving through it quickly is the healthy way. And death is uncomfortable. Let's be honest. Like we all operate under a certain amount of happy delusion that we've got lots of time on the planet. And so when we come up against death, especially unexpected death, um, it can really rock our way of seeing the world in a way that's very uncomfortable to us and to the people around us. So I think that's why we kind of hold it at arm's length, as you're alluding to. someone comes to you like how do you because i've kind of wrestled with this question in terms of if people ask me like finding hope in like a, a bunch of loss it's seemingly around you or just a bunch of sickness so for a little back backstory about me it's like my father wasn't a sudden thing so it was caretaker for a couple of years for him mm-hmm. and so so like, how do you say find hope and optimism when you have this loss around you because um I had a couple people, a couple family members and other friends that have lost significantly more than me. And it's almost made them a little more maybe cynical. Mm. I, it's, it's an individual journey for everybody, but I will say that I think for me, the beauty of the losses that I've had to walk through one you know, one expected with cancer, you sort of see it unfolding. There's a caretaking nature as you're talking about. The other loss was very traumatic. Um, It was very violent. It was very sudden. It was very upsetting to lose my brother to suicide in that way. But the thing that for me has made me feel hopeful and alive and even okay to talk about it (laughs) is this really clear sense of how much I loved them. And that the love is the inverse of the grief. And so I'm willing to hold the grief and hold the pain of it because there was a lot of love present. And I'm, 
I'm grateful that my heart has the capacity for that. Like I'm kind of in awe of it. So I, I can't say like, Hey, here's how you find hope in mm-hmm. these really dark and painful things. But I will say that the fact that you are in pain means number one, that you're alive and your breath is working and your heart is beating and your cells are firing. And I think that's really beautiful. And then the other piece of it is that it hurts because you loved so much. Yeah. I will say for me personally, the, the grieving process has actually made me much more compassionate mm-hmm. with people and not just so, I don't want to be cold, but just, I guess I could be a little more harsher, you know? So I'm a little more understanding of just all people and everything now. And so yeah. I will say that that whole process has kind of softened me up in in that regards. And like humanized you a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Much so much, much. So yeah, it's humanized me. Mm-hmm. Strangely. I resonate with that. Yeah. I don't yeah. think that's strange. I think that's yeah. very, because it's a very human experience, right? Mm-hmm. It's an edge state human experience. It, smacks you in the face with your own humanness of yeah, I, the I limits think, of your time. And I think anytime you hear somebody's losing a relative or just anyone, you, you feel it a little more because you know, you know that pain now. Yeah. And I think you do have a little bit of a choice to mm-hmm. soften or harden. And you alluded to maybe some people that you are connected to who mm-hmm. feel more cynical, like they've mm-hmm. sort of hardened and defended against the reality of the potential of death. But if you can soften instead of harden, like the softening, I think, really deepens your sense of connectedness to yourself, to other people. And frankly, it's really helped me in my business. I know that's a weird thing to say, but I used to be, I'm kind of a taskmaster. Like I got it. I got like a massive to-do list system. Like I'm on it. I get things done. I'm not like that as much anymore. I'm much like slower and maybe less efficient, but my relationships are deeper Mm -hmm. and my professional relationships are deeper. And so that, you know, business moves at the speed of relationship. Like that has actually served me really well to slow down and be more present with the people around me, even in a business capacity. And speaking on relationships, I was curious um, about grief and its relationships because sometimes I, you can hear things that, you know, this person was caretaking or grieving for someone and it kind of broke the relationship apart. So have you researched ED on that? Yeah, there's, um, there's quite a relationship between bereavement and we can call it relationship turmoil, but frankly, a lot of people get divorced following the death of a loved one, especially the death of a child. Um, the, the divorce rate among couples who've lost children is like, I, I don't have the date in front of me. It's like 80%. It's really high. Wow. I wouldn't so, expect that. I, I would expect, I would expect that would be closer. And I think for some it can be, but grief is everybody grieves differently and in their own timing. And I think when you're so raw and the person that you're looking to or reaching to, to be with you in that moment and they're doing a different thing, right? Some some people may grieve in a very emotional way. Some people may at least initially grieve in a very functional, practical way. Like somebody has to like fill out paperwork and make phone calls and pack up boxes. Like there's all this work of grief. So often couples get sort of lost in the timing of how they grieve. Um, so I think one of the things that was really important to me in the midst of my own grief was, you know, my husband and I 
started going to couples therapy because we were missing each other. Like what I needed wasn't obvious to him. He wanted to be present for me, but he was like confused about what I wanted and needed. And I couldn't really tell him very well because I've never done this before. I've never lost my brother to suicide before. So um, anyway, it's a really it's a really good time if you're in a partnership and you're in the middle of a lot of grief. It's a really good time to get some help. And I think that's also where uh, reading books is helpful because it it gives you language to talk about, oh, I'm feeling this too, or I'm not feeling like this. Are you feeling like this? Like, you know, it gives you language to understand where each other are. So communication, sounds like it, it, com- it comes down to communication and it's hard to, like that person that's in the bereavement process, they just can't describe what they're going through. Yeah, sometimes yeah. not. Hmm. That sounds like a lot of, I feel like that can, I feel like that can be a lot of things when it, when it comes to just communication and relationships and how that happens. Cause I, I imagine that's probably a topic that you have to address a lot as well with entrepreneurs. It's just yeah. relationships. Yeah. Especially in, in, in many ways, I think it comes out the, the strain on a relationship comes out at the edge states. So there are, of course, lots of grief, griefs, I should say, in entrepreneurship. And maybe not death per se, but like when a company's not doing well, when there's a loss of certainty, when the economy goes up and down and suddenly your chances of getting VC funding plummet, when Bitcoin goes down or when you lose employees, like there's all of these stressors that involve grief that depending on the, you know, if you're in an intimate relationship, your partner like may not be involved or may not get it, or maybe they are involved, but they feel differently about it. So grief is a huge part of entrepreneurship that can make a a significant strain on your intimate personal relationship. Same with the highs though, you know, maybe you just, you nailed your presentation and your funders are like, like so excited and you're over the moon, really feeling completely overwhelmed and positive and happy with what's happening in your business. And then you go home to your partner and they're like, fabulous. You forgot to take the dog to the vet. And, you know, it's like the the going back and forth of building a business and then trying to be in a household and life with someone can be really challenging. Yeah. And so um, going back to your book, um, just the process of, of writing mm. is a therapeutic process. And I, and I, I bring this up because uh, my mom, who has never really started to write a day in her life, picked up this habit, you know, and just started to write oh. a little bit. And uh, it's like a therapeutic thing for her. So do you think that that helped the process as well a lot, just writing and getting it out? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of data around the value of journaling. Um, Even just daily, a gratitude journal is really helpfully associated with mental health outcomes. But especially when you're in the throes of a big emotional experience, whether that's grief or something else, having language to label what's happening and to get it out of your head and out in front of you on the paper allows you to interact with it in a different way. It's sort of the distinction between saying like, I am depressed versus I have depression right now. When you put it on the paper, it doesn't feel like it's so much a part of you, but rather something that you're interacting with. I don't know if that nuance makes sense, but I think it's, it's pretty important 
to not feel stuck in the reality of the story that you're in, especially if it's grief or depression or burnout, but to put it on paper and be able to see it as separate than you and interact with it in a more neutral, objective way. It makes sense because I feel like some people um, who say they have an illness, so say I have or like I am overweight or I'm overweight right now, it's not letting your identity become distinct. Yeah. And just looking at it as a, as a situation right now, but it's not permanent. Yeah. Like I'm a human with long brown hair. I'm a human who today is wearing overalls. Like these mm-hmm. are just their conditions. They're not identities. And so putting emotion states or some experiences in that category, like I'm a person who lost my dad, but I'm a person first mm-hmm. and the experience follows the personhood or the humanness. Yeah. So as we get ready to start wrapping this up, I'm curious, the, the book process, so I wrote a book a long time ago and mm. I've been procrastinating on doing another one for a while. <laughs> it's like you've been doing some other things though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, I guess the book process, and I guess the way I can describe it is it's, there's a lot of days where it's not that enjoyable. It is, I mean, and there's like, why am I doing it? It's almost, I almost equate it to like running now. It's, I'm like, I'm out here in 90 something degree heat and why am I running all these miles? But then at the end you feel so accomplished and it feels so good. And there's a feeling that's just indescribable. Yeah. And that's kind of what I think about a book. So with you, what's, what's the most gratis, gratifying, gratifying part about writing a book? I love writing. It feels like art to me. Um, Last night, I had the first book reading at a bookstore, and my children were there in the audience. And that felt like magic to me, to be able to share these thoughts and stories and experiences with people, and especially my kids, and to just watch how they were interacting with with my ideas. That's, That's amazing. It's amazing. And I will never take for granted anybody buying my book or reading my book because it it's a it's an investment of time and energy and and so I feel really honored to have been able to do it uh the hardest part for me is the selling right mm-hmm. like especially a book that's this personal it feels tricky to you know to find the language like just to put it in the marketing machine and all the things that you have to do mm-hmm. to honor a book but that part is hard for me feels feels weird were you um nervous about being so personal and didn't essentially having the world know you on a much more intimate level yeah it's a weird thing Cause I'll get on podcasts with people who've read the book and they're like, Oh, I know you, you don't know me, but I know you. (laughs) It's it's weird. Um, but it's also who I am, Mm -hmm. you know, like I, as a psychologist, I'm trained to be, to hold my cards close, right. To be a little bit more of a blank slate, to not be such a human, (laughs) um, and there are ways that that serves my clients at times, but it's it's just not what I'm called to in the world. Like I'm called to be a storyteller and my stories come from my life. So um, it feels right, even if it's scary. And so um, what has you excited in the future? What's, what's exciting you in the moment? What are you looking forward to? So um, something that I 
is part of my life that's really important is I'm, I'm actually a, an aerialist, so a circus artist, and I am getting ready to do a TED Talk about grief and circus. Hmm. And so that I know weird, huh? <laughs> but, um, but movement has been a really important part of my own healing. We talked about writing, writing mm-hmm. was one of the tools, but movement was really the other primary tour that tool that was really helpful to me. So I, I got to do this creative integrated talk talk. I say in quotes, cause it's really more of a performance, um, which I'm super excited about. That sounds like I want to work on that all day, every day. That sounds great. <laughs> so did you start this during the bereavement process or have you always been doing this? I started it just before my dad was diagnosed with cancer, a few months before I started training. So it was cool because it was there when I, you know, it wasn't a totally new practice, but Mm -hmm. it was new enough that I had a lot of time and energy to, uh, to learn, right. I needed to learn a lot so I could throw myself into it. Yeah. Um, I asked that because I, um, I picked up, so I've always just been really more of the lifter and maybe a little boxing, but I picked up the running and a lot of more endurance stuff yeah. during, after my father passed. And it was a way yeah. for me to just um, kind of get away and mm. then clear my thoughts. Cause I, I noticed that one day when I just took off, cause mm-hmm. the gyms were close too. And yep. I, so I just took off and I noticed that, you know, after maybe a mile or two, my thoughts were clear and I could really get some thinking done. Yeah. I love it. I think that when you are in your body in that way, um, it's really focusing and it's also a huge alleviation for grief, right? It's almost like your body is working so hard to hold all of this big emotion Mm -hmm. that when you're running or when you're, you know, when I'm doing aerial arts, like it's almost like my body has something to do, right? Okay, I'll run. I have all this energy. I need to run. I need to lift. I need to move. And it helps the mind to feel calmer, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And um, one of the last questions I asked is, um, pretend you had a bottle of wine or tea or coffee, whatever your beverage of choice is, and you're at a round table and there's three seats there and you can invite any three people from history, dead or alive, to join you for just a conversation and discussion. And it has to exclude family. Who would you invite? Maya Angelou. Um Definitely would be at the table. I love her poetry and writing. And, you know, obviously I was alive when she was alive, but I didn't get to be in her. I didn't get to be in the room with her before she died, but she's mm-hmm. um, just a presence that I really love. Uh, Mary Oliver would probably be another one, another poet. <laughs> um you know, coming also top of mind is Ruth Bader Ginsburg, maybe okay. because I just feel like we need some like real strong grandmotherly power mm-hmm. right now in our uh, current state and time. But yeah, those are the three that come to mind. I'd love to have a conversation with that crew. Okay. And so I think these are kind of a, essentially a reflection of who you are. And so one of the reasons why I usually ask this question is usually the mm-hmm. people that they do, it's qualities that they're embodying, whether they realize it or not. So, you know, I think about these two, they're artists, they're poets, they enjoy, and they enjoy the arts. And then Ruth Bader is someone who speaks her, who spoke her mind. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that you are, you know, you are someone who speaks their mind and you did this ever since growing up. So, I mean, so this is you. 
<laughs> yeah, I could, I'll take it. What a gift. <laughs> I can walk through the day standing taller. Yeah. I feel like I get to be at the table with that crew. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. So um, thank you for this awesome conversation. Where can mm-hmm. listeners learn more about you and pick up your book? Yeah. The, so both books are for sale um, on Amazon and then Touching Two Worlds is wherever books are sold. So that's at your local bookstore around the corner if you want to support your local shop. Um, and then I'm online at, at Sherry Walling, S-H-E-R-R-Y-W-A-L-L-I-N-G, both on Twitter and on Instagram. Um, and hey, if you're on Instagram, please follow me because it's actually surprisingly important to getting a book deal. Instagram? Is they just look at the number of followers you have. No way. I don't even have an Instagram. Seriously. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I only have an Instagram because I love circus. And there's a lot uh-huh. of circus artists that are on Instagram. But my publisher was like, you should get on TikTok. And I was like, hard pass. No offense to anybody yeah. on TikTok. It's just not my vibe. I have so my, anyway. <laughs> I, have my, I have my name. I have my name on TikTok. So like I, I, I already went and got like the handle I want it to kind of. But um. I logged on and I was like, oh, I don't know. It's like, <laughs> Did you just feel the IQ points draining from you? <laughs> I, I guess it was because I, I logged on and it was just like some random like dancing stuff and like goofy stuff. And I'm like, I, I, I was like, I don't know. This don't, this don't feel right. And I was like, I, yeah. I, don't, I don't know. So yep. I, 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 I get the appeal. I, I know it's it's been useful for people, but there's just some thing about it that I can't get behind right now. And so I, I like the playfulness yeah. of it, but yeah. it's again, it's just not, it's just not me right now. So yeah, maybe that, someday in the future, I'll be calling you back and be like, Julian, I'm on TikTok. Let's tell everybody. <laughs> but that is not, that is not this day. Yeah. That's, that's the best way. That's the best way that I can describe it. Just not now. Like I have the handle and we'll see, maybe I'll come across the one and they really convince me mm. that, Hey, you should try TikTok. It's not what you think it is. And I'm like, okay, I'll give it a try because, yeah. uh, because I'm like, I don't really dance at least on video. I mean, I like salsa dancing and stuff, but Ooh. like, I, I'm not going to go on TikTok and just do funny dances. I don't think that's my personality. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe someday though. We'll see. Yeah. Just don't, don't count it out. I won't count it out. Maybe. But for now, yeah, people can find me on Instagram and <laughs> Twitter and at Sherry Walling. I'm also on LinkedIn and um, touchingtoworlds.com is the website for the new book. All right. And I will have all of those links in the show notes and everything. Once again, Sherry, thank you so much for having me, for being honest and ready to. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> I got to get the coffee or something. I had a late night. So. <laughs> Well, thank thanks for fitting me in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, well, actually, you entertained me. So thank you so much for, for joining me. So in all seriousness, I, I really appreciate this topic. And, um, you know, I, I can't wait to finish the book and everything. And so with that said, listeners, stay awesome, be limitless, and as always, never stop upgrading. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.